Throughout the winter of 2007, South Africa experienced a national shortage of lifelong milk. It disappeared from the supermarket shelves in April and didn't return until sometime in November. Had I only been living in Johannesburg, I would barely have noticed, uh, but for hearing about it on the radio once or twice. I don't buy lifelong milk. I buy fresh milk and put it in the fridge. But during that winter, I was spending about half my time in a village on the outskirts of the old Transkei town of Sikisiki. And there, everybody was talking about the shortage of long-life milk. There is no electricity in the village, you see, and thus no fridges, and nobody there has owned a dairy cow in living memory. And so no long-life milk meant no milk. The issue was discussed with special intensity in the Shabins and Spaza shops, because it was from Spaza shop shelves that milk disappeared, and thus in Spaza shops that people first became aware of the problem. My explanation, uh, many explanations did the rounds, but one stuck and became prevalent. There was no more milk, it was said, because black people have invaded white-owned dairy farms, taken them over, and ruined them. It could be one should be in drink amused that the, that the taste of milk will soon become a memory associated with white minority rule. I spent nearly two years working in a Sikisiki and heard many stories. This one was among the most affecting. It said so much about so many things. For one, it seemed clear that in the reservoir of ideas and stories into which Lusiki Siki residents dipped to make sense of the milk shortage, things Zimbabwean had mixed with things South African. It's highly unlikely that the story would have been told in Lusiki Siki had state-sponsored farm invasions not begun in 2000 north of the Limpopo. The explanation for the missing milk was thus a reminder of how profoundly the Zimbabwean experience has affected South African emotions and infiltrated imaginations. And, and what South Africans have buyed from the events north of the river are so terribly complex. To throw rich white landholders off their farms is a long-held and cherished fantasy, one bound to the most powerful collective feelings, those of justice, of restitution, of what it might mean to be free. And yet the milk story seems also to be one about the greed of the oppressed and their comeuppance. Hungrily you grab the farms without having stopped to ask yourself whether you know what to do with them. Although nobody who told the story laughed in the telling of it, it does smack of satire and, and perhaps even of slapstick. Yet if the milk story had strong regional dimensions, what moved me far more was its connection to local histories. Lusikisiki is the sort of place that has always needed to tell stories about faraway events in order to understand itself. It is on the one hand very isolated. It's outlying, in its outlying villages there are no newspapers, uh, very few televisions, and no middle class with its sense of worldly connectedness. And, and yet the fate of this place has been intimately connected to global market forces for more than 100 years. From the first decade of the 20th century, these villages have shaped their existence around work in the reef's gold mines. When the gold trade prospers, Lusiki Siki homesteads shared in the good times. When the gold industry began its rapid decline in the 1980s, a way of life began to crumble, a trauma to which people are still adjusting two decades later. A place that's both so isolated and yet so exposed to faraway currents inevitably overinterprets the science that drift in from abroad. Things are always invested with too much meaning. As Helen Bradford tells us, when aircraft began flying over Lusikisiki in the 1920s, a movement arose led by a man who claimed to be in celestial contact with black Americans. He prophesied that Americans who had come to know and master white technology would land an aircraft near Lambassi a coastal district between Lusikisiki and Mkambati, chase white people away and restore Mpandaland's uh, uh, independence. 
During the 1918 flu epidemic, speculation raged in these parts that the plague had been brought by the white authorities. When at the tail end of the epidemic, officials began visiting the villagers with flu vaccination kits, Benedict Carton tells us, rumors circulated that they were coming to kill off those the plague had missed. No Western technology has ever been neutral here, whether medical or aeronautical. In its collective memory, this place is acutely aware that its engagements with the outside have never been benign, uh, that for the last century and more it has been fighting the battle of preservation. With Elegant's economy, the story about the shortage of long-life milk absorbs much of this history. The idea of whites being chased off the land is a sweet fantasy people in these villages have indulged for generations. It's certainly what came to mind when aircraft flew over in the 1920s, and it's seldom been out of mind since 1960, when the great uprising of the Impunderland peasantry was put down with military force. So the idea that white dairy farmers have been hounded off their land is no surprise. It's an image with a pedigree in these parts. But from where does the second part of the tale arise, which says that the blacks who took over the farms have ruined them? At the time, I thought that that part of the story was simply self-flagellating. But I've come to revise that now and think the story to be more complex. My initial impressions were probably shaped too much by a particular young man with whom I was spending most of my time. What the two of us were doing in the main was visiting the HIV clinics that had come to Lusikisiki in recent times. For each clinic we visited, Siswe, the young man, insisted that we visit a traditional healer who claimed to cure AIDS. He didn't like the idea of a lifelong treatment, and that's a lifelong dependency. He wanted a cure, and he desperately wanted it to be an impando cure. And yet each healer we visited failed, and each failure Siswe experienced as personal humiliation. Although he never put it in so many words, his fear was that generations of white minority rule have robbed him and his people not only of their political independence, not only of their land, but also of their wisdom, such that when a plague comes to decimate the living, Mpandos don't have the knowledge or the technology to defend themselves. It's, of course, possible to tell the whole history of the 20th century this way. <clears throat> the Mpandos once knew themselves as farmers, but they farm little now. Their men once made uh, lives mining gold, but only a few of them mine now. Much of what they once knew has been lost or taken away. And so the idea that blacks have taken over farms is immediately attached to the belief that they have ruined those farms. It's as if freedom has come too late, the people now freed too humiliated, too long ago severed from the art of the possible, to use that freedom well. <coughs> That's how I thought of the long-life milk story at the time, but I've come to revise my own story about the story, at least a little. What triggered the revision was a recent, village to the same, uh, a recent visit to the same village on the outskirts of Lisikisiki, and the same Shabin in which I heard the explanation for the shortage of milk. This time the drinkers were talking of other things, among them the global recession. I'm not quite sure why they were talking about it, to be honest. Among the most significant things this village has experienced in recent times is a sudden and dramatic rise in the cost of staple foods, especially maize meal, bread, and of course long-life milk. Everyone was aware that this, this price escalation was a global phenomenon, um, and that is probably why it was linked to talk of global recession. Again, many theories were postulated, and again, one in particular resonated immediately and then stuck. It's because a black man has become president of America, one of the drinkers said. The white businessmen responded by putting their hands in their pockets. It's another of those stories that's about so much. For one, it is surely the South African story writ large. We black people have now reacquired sovereignty after all these years. We have state power, only to find that real power has dodged us and gone and hidden in other places. 
For real power resides in technologies that are not ours, and that will always be used against us whether we have political power or not. The investments in financial technologies that determine whether we can afford to buy the food we must put on our tables, the medical technologies that determine whether we can treat the ill, these are locked up in other people's cultures, in other people's minds, and such people are not our friends. I think that that feeling is part of what animated the story about why long-life milk disappeared from the spaza shops. It's not that we have lost our wisdom, but that the wisdom upon which the modern world operates has been appropriated by others. We can seize commercial farms, but the technologies in which they run are not ours, and their possessors will always hoard them. Hence, we can have power, we can walk onto the farms and seize them, but the victory can only be Pyrrhic because there will be no more milk. Many, many of the corridors of academia say something similar, albeit in a different idiom. They say that state sovereignty, especially African state sovereignty, is declining, that more and more power, economic, political, and coercive, resides in transnational institutions and technologies of which states have little control, that in their engagement with the world, the odds are stacked heavily against Africans. Here is John Lonsdale, for instance. Africa is locked into world capitalism, he writes, with less than 2% of global trade and with its export prices declining by 60% in the last 20 years, Africa is also in practice locked out. For lack of bargaining power, Africans pay the costs of market inequality and enjoy few of its benefits. Yet I think the consequences of trans sky shabine drinkers saying and thinking these things are very different from the consequences of academics saying them. The idea that the technologies on which modernity runs are foreign and that they'll always belong to others has the potential to be immensely destructive. A great many South Africans might die because they hold this belief. And here's one example of why I say this. April 2010 was a momentous time in the history of the South African AIDS epidemic. In that month, the South African government turned its back in the most decisive manner on years of ambivalence and obfuscation and announced that it intended for its healthcare personnel to test 15 million people for <coughs> HIV by next June. That's nearly one in three South Africans. If the campaign comes anywhere near its targets, a great many more South Africans are going to test positive and at some point begin antiretroviral treatment. By some estimates, as many as 2 million people may be on treatment in the next few years. This will constitute the greatest challenge the country's healthcare system has faced in the last 16 years. According to the government's plans, over 4,300 sites across the country will be equipped to administer ARV treatment. That's nearly four times the number of police stations. Some 4,800 nurses assisted by 9,000 lay counselors will be trained to initiate and manage AIDS treatment. What will it mean in everyday life, in the phenomenology of being South African, when everybody knows somebody on treatment? I think that it will mean a great many conflicting things. But my worry is that one of the things it will come to mean is a dependence on foreign technology, a technology that not only isn't ours, but that teases people, keeping them sick their entire lives. The lifelong course of twice-a-day medication is a difficult business. There are times when the pills make one sick and another combination has to be found. A new side effect may suddenly manifest and one wonders whether the pills have stopped working and, and whether one will get ill and die. Many people love and hate their pills at the same time and would dearly like to throw them away, to be independent again. There is little doubt that for many the dependence on the pills becomes associated with racial and political dependence. The image of two million, mainly black South Africans, reliance on this 12-hour dose of pills is a forceful metaphor for the idea that real power has dispersed and hidden away, that despite being free, South Africans are at the whim of greater forces. 
Among all the people in Lusiki Siki with whom I've spoken to AIDS, everybody, and, and I mean every single one, has doubts about from where it came and whether it cannot actually be cured. Why did AIDS arrive precisely at the time black South Africans acquired political power? Why does it largely kill black people? And why have Western scientists who have managed to invent so much else not come up with a cure? Whatever else people think about AIDS, and people do think a great many different things and argue a great deal with one another, these questions have enormous resonance. My worry is that if antiretroviral treatment comes to represent racial dependence, if it's understood as an exemplar of the power of the West to keep black bodies weak and sick, South Africa's treatment program will itself become weak and sick. It's a very ambitious undertaking. Providing two million people and more with AIDS medication will be a hard program to sustain. Managers of medical supply chains will make serious mistakes. Many nurses will resent and fear both the extra workload and the life and death decisions they'll be forced to make. They will try to find ways of turning patients away. And so a great deal is going to depend on what ordinary people think and do. If the health system is to perform well, it will be because patients and their families demand no less. If, on the other hand, South Africans greet treatment with a defensive nationalism, the feeling that they're only on treatment because they're already half defeated, the program may wither. A successful program will require a great many people to feel the very opposite, that antiretrovirals are not a reminder of continued African suffering, but on the contrary are a right for citizens of the 21st century, that they are the vehicle by which modern medicine will at last reach every corner of the country, and that modern medicine is something everybody deserves. How ordinary South Africans understand their place in the modern world has consequences for their health. If they believe that the technologies, technologies of the 21st century ought to be theirs by right, then they may do a good job retaining some of the technologies that come their way. If they feel that these technologies belong to others and can only be used against the African poor, people who may have lived will die. So much for ordinary people in the chance sky. What about those who administer the state? Is there any evidence to suggest that the management of some public institutions is animated by the idea that knowledge, skill, and technology do not belong to Africans, that they belong ineluctably to hostile people? There are such institutions, vital ones. I take an example from the health sector and talk of public hospitals, drawing on the work of Carl van Holt. How van Holt came to know about public hospitals is part of the story worth sharing. He's a veteran labor activist and scholar, best known in the later apartheid years for editing the South African Labour Bulletin, which was close to organized labor. In 2000, von Holt was working as a researcher for the Congress of South African Trade Unions Research Institute, Naledi. Naledi was approached by Kosatu's affiliates in the health sector to assist with proposals to change the management principles of Chris, Bar- Chris Hani Baragwanath Hospital in Soweto, sub-Saharan Africa's largest hospital. In 2010, after a decade's experience of South African public hospitals, Van Holt writes, quote, of a systematic dysfunctionality which affects all aspects of hospital function. Poor maintenance, failure to repair or fix equipment, lack of linen, dirty linen, procurement failures, the breakdown of lifts, dirty wards, budget overruns, poor labor relations, unfilled posts, inability to, to budget or control costs, failure to supply drugs or medical sundries, ill-discipline, lost records. There is no end to the list of frustrations and problems that staff experience. The problem is not only that public hospitals are characterized by ineffective functioning and poor health care results, von Holt continues, it's that public hospitals and the public health system more broadly actually seem to be in a state of decline. To what does von Holt attribute this decline? 
he notes that the health department is assiduous in devising performance indicators and in collecting the data that the indicators demand. But the indicators themselves are not designed to inform the department of how well it's doing at its core job, which is to manage illness. The most important indicators, for instance, concern employment equity. While clinical data, Van Holt tells us, quote, barely exists, which seems not to trouble uh, department officials. Van Holt also notes that the budgetary process in the Department of Health is close to sacred and that the rituals of budgetary compliance are considered sacrosanct. And yet, he writes, quote, the budgets and the rituals that surround budgeting appear uh, bear next to no relationship to the concrete healthcare activities of the hospitals. As the financial year draws near, as financial year ends draws near, and head office officials realize that hospitals are overspending, enormous pressure is put on them to cut costs. With measures such as reducing pharmaceutical inventory, cancelling elective surgery, freezing unfilled posts, and so on. While this might reduce spending overruns, it generates wastage of a different sort as highly paid specialists and equipment are left idle. Officials, hospital managers, and clinicians are left with a little doubt that it's the budgets and the rituals that surround it that are primary. Budgetary discipline is, of course, important in any effective state apparatus. However, where discipline is imposed on the basis of budgets that bear no meaningful relationship with reality, it's liable to convey messages that have little to do with discipline. The impact on service delivery is profound because the signals that these budget rituals convey is that service delivery is of secondary importance. Unquote. So we have a department that collects data methodically, but the data says nothing about the health of patients. A department that regards the bureaucratic hierarchy as sacred but does not wield authority in the cause of improving clinical outcomes. What are these processes and procedures about then? For von Holt, one answer lies in the fact that the people at the coalface of a hospital's work, clinicians and nurses, are highly skilled bearers of esoteric medical knowledge, and officialdom's attitudes towards their skills is ambivalent. On the one hand, health officials of course want skill, because that is precisely what they need to serve patients. And yet history has bequeathed skill to South African hospitals embedded in people and in traditions associated deeply and perhaps indelibly with racial supremacism. And so the bearers of these skills, including the black people among them, are in a deep and often hard-to-articulate sense the latter-day embodiment of a long history of collective belittlement. Von Holt talks of government officials suffering under, quote, the gaze of Europe. What he means by the gaze of Europe is similar to what Shabin drinkers and Lusikisiki mean <coughs> when they talk of white businessmen putting their hands in their pockets after a black American came to power. He means that real power does not reside in state sovereignty that black people have acquired, but in the knowledges and technologies hoarded by others. <clears throat> Only here, the gaze of Europe is right inside the institutions that health department officials manage. And so von Holt concludes that among the primary functions of the record-keeping and the budgetary procedures he describes is the disciplining of skilled personnel. In one case... Von Holt writes, a hospital CEO and his management team were removed, at least in part, because they were regarded as too responsive to the hospital clinicians and were replaced by a new team dispatched from head office with an explicit mandate to, to regain control over them. To the doctors and nurses, it was abundantly clear that the new team was less competent than the old and had little interest in the problems experienced at ward level. In, indeed, the new CEO displayed an embarrassing ignorance about the hospital functioning over three or four years of tenure. In contrast to the despair of clinicians, the most senior managers at head office expressed satisfaction with the performance of the new team because they had managed to gain some control over costs and an improved financial reporting. <coughs> that is not quite the end of von Holt's story. The gaze of Europe, of which he 
uh, of which he speaks is a withering, humiliating gaze. One of the functions of the budgetary procedures and data collecting activities he describes is to retrieve dignity in the face of Europe's gaze. This concern finds expression in another aspect of departmental culture, that of showing enormous deference to political authority. And I quote again, this is organized around elaborate rituals, von Holt writes. When a minister or MEC is going to visit the hospital, it is convulsed by efforts to focus all available resources on making it as presentable as possible. Patient care is put on hold, while senior nurses are deployed to make sure that wards and corridors are cleaned, managers ensure that the grass, which generally grows knee-high because they're insufficient gardeners, is mown. Doctors are instructed to make their domains as presentable as possible. Nurses, doctors, and managers are well aware that it is a sham hospital that is being presented for scrutiny, and the message is to prevent at all costs the politician from seeing the real hospital. South Africa's second democratically elected president, Tavo Mbeki, famously harbored deep ambivalences towards modern science, and especially towards its technicians and, and, and practitioners. On the one hand, Mbeki was a quintessential modernizer. When he came to office in 1999, he behaved in part as a creature of the early 1960s, a time when African nationalists believed uh, that from their new presidential offices they could fashion advanced industrial societies. I will not forget the short clipped speech he delivered after the ANC's election victory in 1999. Let's get back to work, he said dryly. And yet this is the very same man who entertained a cure for AIDS that used industrial solvents and then through his health minister permitted his government to advocate garlic and beetroots over clinically tested medicines in the management of HIV. He started from a position of sharp and indeed healthy skepticism of scientific orthodoxy worrying that its provisional conclusions had been shaped too much by powerful industrial interests and by racial prejudice, instead of by evidence. These were not unreasonable worries, surely. Yet he ended behaving not unlike the health department officials von Holt describes. He came to view medical technology in the form of antiretroviral treatment and medical personnel in the form of the doctors who were clamoring to administer it as a Trojan horse come to sack Africa's Troy. It's hard to overstress what a technophobic spirit he unleashed that he was Africa's arch-modernizer, a skeptical rationalist to his very bones, makes the story all the more astonishing. It's interesting to trace his path from one to the other, from healthy skepticism to technophobia. He began not by mistrusting science as such, but the institutions that were producing its findings. And yet there were no alternative institutions to which to turn. His own universities and labs, it turned out, were also under orthodoxy's spell. And so it was just him, a band of dissidents on the outer, internets of, uh, on the, on the outer fringes of the internet, and beetroots. His mistrust of particular institutions became a mistrust of science as it was actually practiced, and that's really of science itself. He came to share some of the views of the Lusikisiki Shabin drinkers. For like them, he appeared to believe that although Africans had acquired state sovereignty, real power had come to reside in technologies that did not belong to Africans and that would always be used against them. That the ANC's man of enlightenment led us upon this path shows just how deeply troubled is South African nationalism's relationship with modern technology and its bearers, and how the future of that relationship is bound to play no small part in, fating, in, in shaping the country's fate. Perhaps the story of Mbeki's relation to technology is symptomatic of a broader relationship between South Africa's presence and past. Apartheid's rulers fetishized technology, that they built an advanced, industri- uh, an advanced manufacturing base, built nuclear weapons, refined oil, and conducted high-tech training and research across a string of disciplines was constitutive of their identity. 
Afrikaner nationalism celebrated its heart surgeons and its nuclear scientists as among its truest patriots. A, a white tribe isolated the, at the tip of an increasingly hostile continent, it understood technology both as a mark of racial distinction and as a source of survival. The ANC came of age under the shadow of the technological nationalism of its enemy and was marked by it in complicated ways. On the one hand, the ANC imbibed the National Party's fetishization of technology. The most deeply held and non-negotiable aspect of the ANC's ideology is the idea of modernization. This is surely closely connected to apartheid's valorization of the modern. Apartheid's achievements are a measuring rod against which the ANC must perform. Everything the ANC ever does must be named an act of modernization. The word is nothing less than sacred. And yet, paradoxically, the technological nationalism of apartheid has also, mean to, has also come to mean something else. Racial oppression in South Africa was often experienced as and represented by the, hard, the, the harnessing of modern expertise. It was a tool of power, perhaps the most powerful of them all, which the majority was never permitted to wield. Thus, in post-apartheid South Africa, the people, institutions, and language in which expertise is housed and through which it is practiced comes directly from humiliating and corrosive moments in the past. There is little doubt that whatever else it signifies, it represents the old among the new, the stubborn force of reaction in the face of change. And so the NC came to power carrying on its shoulders the burden of an uncomfortable technological inheritance. Coming to power as it did in the mid-1990s, it inherited something else too, not from white South Africans, but from the world. The ANC spent much of the second half of the 20th century with its sights trained on state power. It did so in part because of the immense promise the state held as an instrument of change. And yet by the time the ANC moved its personnel to the, into the union buildings in 1994, global faith in what states might achieve was fast waning, and especially African states, which was clear if anyone with eyes to see, were forced to play it by rules their personnel had not written and to operate in a world which they could not hope to control. The confluence of these two inheritance, inheritances, a national inheritance that tied technological know-how to racial domination, and a global conjuncture in which sovereign power was shrinking, acted powerfully on the ANC. The global forces robbing Africans of sovereignty were perhaps perceived as taking expression in South African institutions, South African technicians, South African patriots, in, in elements of the South African state itself, it was perhaps a case of the enemy within. It's of course no secret that states inherited by liberation movements must perform many functions. They must house homeless people, heal the sick, shape policies, policies that facilitate the employment of people in the private sector. But they have other urgent functions besides. One of them is class formation. A nation that has just been freed needs to see many among its number climb quickly into the ranks of the petty bourgeoisie. The state must also become a site that gives expression to national dignity, perhaps also to confidence, to a sense of a nation's place in the world. It's also no secret that good governance requires that these functions be balanced against one another. Healing the sick, as, as von Holtz shows, is a function that may push against that of class formation. The relationship between the two must be carefully managed. I think that South Africa's fraught technological inheritance made these balances very hard to achieve. Shaping the health service around the professional needs of apartheid-trained doctors, for instance, proved too bitter a task to accomplish. From its very earliest days in power, the ANC gave over entire state departments to purposes that were in fact anti-modernizing in their effects. Like the Impandosha bean drinkers, some in the ANC perhaps suspected that although they were destined to take over the farm, parts of it would not produce much milk. These parts would be set aside for very different purposes. 
Is it plausible that Thabo Mbeki understood things this way? I think that it, it is evident from the manner in which he managed the state. Three very important state institutions, the central bank, the treasury, and the revenue service, were ring-fenced from everything happening around them and run in meritocratic and ration, rationalistic principles. The last of these, the revenue service, was detached from the recruitment procedures, the rank structures, and the salary scales that applied to the rest of the civil service and permitted a degree of self-governance unknown to other state institutions. It's surely no coincidence that it was these of all public institutions that were run in this way, for their technocratic competence was, was vital to the nationalist project. Poor fiscal management, bad monetary policy, and haphazard revenue collection might together render South Africa dependent on creditors, perhaps upon the Bretton Woods institutions, which South Africa avoided like the plague. If there was ever a moment where technocratic governance and the quest for sovereignty coupled, it was in the management of these institutions. Other very large and important state institutions were run on entirely different principles. Perhaps the most obvious is the police, which I think it would be fair to say both meritocracy and efficiency were abandoned in the interest of other priorities. Most important perhaps being class formation, as tens and thousands of young Africans were catapulted by virtue of their recruitment into the police from the margins of the South African economy into the ranks of the petty bourgeoisie. I watched at close quarters as old institutions housed in the police, like the detective service, crumbled in rapid time, with skilled personnel leaving in haste. Institutional memory left with them to the extent that simple bureaucratic functions that had been performed routinely for generations, from the securing of a crime scene to the collection of ballistic evidence, were now in many cases left unperformed. It's remarkable to think that the South African Police Service and the South African Revenue Service are managed by the same government. It's indeed strange to contemplate that the likes of Trevor Manuel and Manto Shabalala and Simang sat in the same cabinet for many years. Such contrasts speak vividly of the, of the diverse purposes of governance in South Africa. I think that at times Mbeki believed that the technocratic institutions in the state might discipline those institutions given over to other prerogatives, such that the whole could work well. Certainly Manuel's treasury waved the sword of Damocles over everybody's head, entering the nightmares of ministers and directors general in every government department. But as von Holt points out, this hardly makes for effective governance. By the time Treasury's budgetary decrees enter the line functions of departments, he writes, quote, they resemble the strange mutations that imperial decrees may take when they arrive in distant reaches of the empire, where they have to be translated into local languages and contexts by local proxies of the imperial center. It's hard to exaggerate how hybrid a beast the South African state has become. Parts of it are capable of managerial feats its predecessors over the course of the 20th century would have struggled to accomplish. A good example is Rea Via, Johannesburg's new bus rapid transport network. Public transport is among Johannesburg's saddest legacies. Some two million people are carted across the city every day, from the furthest outskirts to various centers. They are carted by an industry that is wild, intemperate, and regulated by violence. This daily ritual is eloquent testimony to apartheid's short-sightedness its stubborn insistence on building cities whose structures denied the ineluctable demographic forces shaping modern South Africa. Rayavaya was primarily a local government initiative. After less than a year of planning and a further year of construction, it built a fast, safe, and inexpensive journey from Soweto to Johannesburg for about 100,000 commuters. Its success is very likely to begin to change the shape of the city as human populations densify along its routes. Through a creative system of equity ownership and labor transfers, it also coaxed the industry that for 30 years had privately owned the consumer route into the formal economy, 
as bus owners, drivers, and station marshals. It managed to do this despite the fact that the taxi industry is stitched into a vast informal economy, consisting of everything from parts markets and vehicle manufacture to organized carjacking, football match fixing, and international drug trade. The social management of this project is no less impressive than its infrastructural management. The city retrieved a vital public function from private interests. It brought a strategic city space that had not been governed in more than three decades under an enforceable system of regulation. This the apartheid state could not have done, for it had neither the legitimacy nor the ideological legitimacy to tame the social interests involved. And yet local governments are also losing the ability to perform functions their predecessors did with little trouble. For instance, local governments across the very same South Africa in which Rea Vaya was built appear to have lost control over the disposal of human waste. For more than a year, the Department of Water Affairs and Forestry attempted to conceal a report, finally leaked in April, indicating that of South Africa's 850 sewerage treatment plants, 35 are functioning properly. A recent audit of water quality in the Western Cape, conducted by the Wildlife and Environmental Society of South Africa, found unprecedented levels of water pollution in the province's major and minor rivers. As for the Eastern Cape, 150 kilometers from Lusikisiki in Mtata, the sewage sewage works have essentially folded as there no longer a single water engineer or municipality (coughs) staff. The municipality is now bypassing the treatment works altogether and has the sewage flow untreated directly into the river. This adds a new flavor to the old transkai's inequalities, as those without piped water, still a significant part of the population, (coughs) must risk imbibing the waste of those blessed with waterborne sewage every time they go to the river. During the second half of his presidency, Thabo Mbeki began calling the South African state a developmental state. From the moment he first uttered it, the term became an immensely attractive ideology to many constituencies, primarily because it clothed a range of things people wanted to do with, uh, to do with the state in, in the legitimacy of a modernizing garb. It's surely clear that the idea of a de- developmental state in South Africa is an ideology, <coughs> one that bears only a patchy relationship to what the South African state actually is. As it existed in East Asia, the developmental state required a bureaucracy characterized at the very least by the following three features. It could work closely with business interests without being captured by those interests. It recruited meritocratically and exhibited high levels of technocratic competence. And it had a corporatist identity and culture, underpinned by the fact that it was run by careerists for whom the civil service was a vocation. The South African bureaucracy does exhibit these features in small and very important pockets, but the vast bulk of the bureaucracy has only some of them or none of them, and it's given over to other purposes. The idea of the developable state may not be an accurate characterization of the South African bureaucracy, but it's a very powerful ideology, one with very significant consequences. It's, it has become one of those terms whose virtue lies in its imprecision, for it can be deployed to describe and thus give a stamp of legitimacy to all sorts of experiments and projects. For instance, among the most significant projects the ANC has accomplished since coming to power is a redistribution of wealth to a significant number of black South Africans. This has happened in three ways. First, through a vast expansion of various welfare provisions, particularly old age pensions and child grants. The government has redistributed income to the very poorest, precisely when South Africa's unemployment rate crept above 20% for the first time in the country's history. This has stabilized countless homes that may have been left without means. As Anthony Altbecker has pointed out, it's probably no coincidence that South Africa's murder rate began to decline sharply precisely when welfare began its rapid expansion. These redistributions perhaps took the edge off countless moments of private despair. 
The second has been to use parts of the bureaucracy for petty bourgeois class formation. And this, too, has come to constitute a significant moment in ordinary South Africans' experience of freedom. The beneficiaries have been recruited from a large cross-section of urban and rural South Africa. The result is that an untold number of people have watched men and women they know rise from relative poverty to suburban home ownership in the space of a few years. This has sent powerful signals into everyday experience, signals that rapid upward mobility is possible, not just in the abstract, but for people one has known all one's life, and that democracy's rewards are thus tangible. The third has been to use a broad band of effectively enforced legislation to create in rapid time a generation of black multimillionaires. This is perhaps the post-apartheid state's loudest symbolic achievement. It was certainly one of its most urgent and earnestly accomplished. It's possible that the ANC will one day lose control over what ostentatious, ostentatious black wealth comes to mean to ordinary people. But certainly in the first years of democracy, it signaled the magnitude of what is possible. And yes, as Muletsi and Becky has pointed out, not a single aspect of this project is developmental. It's entirely redistributive. None of it creates new sources of wealth or services, uh, old sources. Little of it lays down infrastructure for the future. It is called developmental, and the designation resonates because anything that increases the quotient of black dignity or wealth, anything that furnishes black people with material with which they might dream, has come to be called developmental. I'm, not, I'm surely not being semantic in insisting that this wide and vague use of the term is dangerous, for it allows a great deal to pass under cover. In particular, it allows a state whose leaders feel ambivalent about technology and its uses to argue that they are modernizing when they are in fact doing something else. Even more dangerous is when people begin really to believe the words that they use, because it's possible that a generation of leaders might come to disable parts of the state while thinking that they're developing it. The words we choose to name things are very important. We began by eavesdropping on a group of beer drinkers in a village on the outskirts of Lusikisiki. They were speculating about why milk had disappeared from the shelves of their local spaza shop. I didn't, I didn't conduct a census of the drinkers that evening, but I'm reasonably certain that all of those who had been 18 years or older on April 27, 1994, had voted ANC, and that they'd done so as a matter of faith and of principle. The ANC was theirs. It was inseparable from, the many, uh, from many deeply held feelings and imaginings. Those among the drinkers who were Laminis, and there were a couple of them, felt an especially close connection to the union buildings, for they considered Tabuembeki to be family. When they contemplated the notion that, that the milk had dried up because blacks had taken over the farms, the anxieties they expressed were at once about themselves and their new government. Our leaders are in power at last, but can they govern? I've argued that those at the helm of the new government have attained similar anxieties. What precisely their anxieties were is a slippery matter. Was it their own expertise that bothered them? The idea that the course of the 20th century had taken had sapped them of their wisdom. Or was it the idea that although they were wise, they were also powerless, that the knowledges and technologies required to exercise real power belonged to others and would not be shared? The liberation movement that took over South Africa faced these questions in ways that were a little different from other sub-Saharan uh, countries. The South African farm, to keep the metaphor running, was not quite like other African farms. It was highly mechanized, much, much more so than any of its neighbors, and required many technicians to maintain it. It's quite a predicament for a country to face. South Africa's rulers have inherited a complex modern state and an advanced industrial base, and yet feel a deep ambivalence towards the technologies that make the country work. How this ambivalence plays itself out is a story that is certain to grow more interesting as it proceeds. Thanks.